This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. From music to maps, money and modernity, this is where ideas come to life. Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. Uh, I'm your host, Eric Jones, and uh, with me in studio is uh, Garrett Clayton. Hey, Garrett. Hey, how's it going? Great to have you with us. Uh, Garrett is at the Department of Mechanical Engineering in, in, in Villanova. In the, it's at a college over there, like a separate, yeah. yeah. Well, it's uh, the College of Engineering at Villanova University. Yeah, yeah. okay. And, uh, and and in and, and, um, mechanical engineering and also stint in the dean's office? Yeah, so I'm associate dean for graduate studies okay. right now. Yeah, you don't, no comment, you don't have to. Oh, no, it's great. I'm, <laughs> I'm enjoying it. It's my, my first year, so I'm, okay, that's I'm, learn, I'm learning the job. <laughs> okay, that's good. Uh, but we're here to talk about uh, a really interesting topic, uh, which you've titled Technology for Humanitarian Explosive Ordnance Disposal and Demining in Southeast, Demining in Southeast Asia. So, EOD explosive ordnance disposal is is a term that that we use a lot, and we'll we'll use a few others. We'll try to for our listeners make sure we clarify. But like when we say uh, EOD, what do we mean? So, um, in a lot of Southeast Asia, due to the uh, due to the conflicts that have been going on for the you know in the in the past fifty years, um, there's there's a significant amount of unexploded ordnance or UXO uh, is another is another word that we use a lot. Um, that is either their, uh, their dud bombs, their landmines, their stockpile munitions um, that are there that need to be dealt with. And so what typically happens is you have NGOs and government organizations that, uh, that their job is to manage the stockpiles, defuse the bombs, demine the fields, um, and that's, that's what they do. Uh, with the idea that once they can clear the land, you can have you know, use it in some way, maybe as a farm or some kind of other livelihood activity. Right, right. Um, and and I hope our listeners would know, but the 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 scale, especially in in Cambodia, is enormous. Uh, you quoted some statistics, and I was, you know, checking some of my own. Um, do you remember how square kilometers we're talking uh, f- about? Forty five hundred square kilometers of uh, of of land. And and I think there's another there's a couple other uh, statistics, but that's the one that I usually use. Yeah, that's uh, and and you you cited that uh, so from seventy nine. So after the fall of Democratic Kampuchea to present, sixty four thousand nine hundred and fifty some uh, deaths from uh, from landmines. So this is uh, and and uh, also a statistic that is incredible for scale is two point seven million tons of ordnance. Are dropped on Cambodia, a country we're not at war with. Yes, I might, <laughs> I yes. might remind our listeners. Yeah. two point seven million tons, and that is in all of World War II. The Allies dropped two million combined in World War II. Just in Cambodia, two point seven million tons was dropped. It's an extremely large amount. <laughs> and and uh, <laughs> and you know, and if you look at uh, those bombs, you know, many of them went off. But but you know the dud rate on some of those clusters. Yeah, munitions. so talk about that. Like what what so so we're talking about like a, a sortie and and uh, you know and also it's 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 pretty just it's pretty terrifying that uh, place some places were targeted, but also basically the the instructions were to don't come back, you know, dump everything. And so there's lots of indiscriminate um, bombing. So so uh, what percentage of these bombs like are 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 going off and not going off how does that work yeah so the dud rate on some of the cluster munitions that were dropped especially in uh, kind of the northeast border section between vietnam and cambodia um was like 30 percent so you know so so we have 30 percent of the bombs fell didn't explode and now our hazards that are sitting sitting in in the in the fields on the ground um and then i've seen statistics for the other bombs that were dropped in in the 10 to 15 percent dud rate range um, and if you think about two point, what did you say? Two, two point, point seven million, million tons. Million so, tons. So, so a third of that, like you know, um, almost a million. Maybe that fifteen to twenty percent of that. You know, it's it's quite a lot of unexploded ordnance that uh, that uh, that have that that needs to be dealt with. Um, and it's been 
you know, they've been dealing with it, but it still is a problem that persists. So, so you know, the, I mean, this statistic was mostly sort of from the air that has dropped the the 2.7 million tons of ordnance. But what are some of the other um, sort of in the field um, uh, unexploded ordnance that are out there? Yeah. So probably the 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 biggest other one in Cambodia specifically is is the landmines. Okay. So um, when uh, the Khmer Rouge was pushed out of uh, of power, you know, they were pushed to the Cambodia Thai border, and um, in order to keep uh, them isolated, right? They they mined that whole area, and it's uh, you know one of the most densely uh, mined areas, or the most dense, densely yeah. mined area in the world is in that minefield, um, and that is still being cleared today. I think you know there was a uh, there was a conference, oh, maybe a workshop. I don't remember what they called it, but a couple years ago, where they got together and they were coming up with a new plan for how they're going to approach the demining, and they said you know in the next ten years we're going to clear all the mines. And, um, you know, they had this really aggressive plan. I don't know what happened with it, with, with, uh, with COVID. Yeah. Lots of things changed. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, I, I'd be interested to see how far they are along. It's, it's fair to say they're, they're not gone. They're not, <laughs> they're, they're, yeah. they're not gone. I think, I think most people think that it's a much longer yeah. term process. I, th- I think the, if there's any positive, it's that they know where most of the mines are now. So the casualties okay. have come down significantly. Meaning that they know the sort of the areas to stay away from. Exactly. Exactly. So they have a good idea about where not to go. Right. Okay. And, and it's kind of switched in more from a, you know, let's keep the public safe uh, uh, mission for the demining organizations um, more towards a, you know, how do we release land for livelihood activities? Right. Clear it and yeah. release it. Yeah. Um, so maybe we should, we should, uh, I guess we sort of presented the problem. Let's, let's talk, talk about your interesting um, background. So what is your, your, you're an engineer and, um, and in mechatronics, which is a very cool <laughs> word. Uh, Something that was made up by the Japanese. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, so I'm, I'm a mechanical engineer. I have a PhD in mechanical engineering. Um, and uh, my background is in mechatronics, which is the, well, the word itself comes from mechanical and electronics put together. Ah. And um, what it deals with is really it's, it's an integration for mechanical, electrical, control systems, and computer engineering. And it's this idea that you're working with embedded systems, um, you know, smart systems, uh, some kind of intelligence embedded in systems. So, um, you know, so robots are good examples of the physical robot is a good example of a mechatronic system. But things can also be mechatronic, like a really smart toaster that maybe knows when to you know, can figure out when your toast is perfectly golden brown, you know, that type of thing. Something with a microprocessor in it doing some sense. Okay. So it's got, so it's got the sort of the mechanical side, but it's also got this, it's a, it's a smart device in some way that, uh, that, that talks to each other. Um, What kind of, uh, and so you're, you're aligned with a couple of interesting organizations Say a bit about the Center for Humanitarian Engineering, which sounds really sure. So great. The, yeah, so the Center for Humanitarian Engineering is a center at Villanova University out of the College of Engineering um, run by Jordan Ermelio. And uh, their focus is on, um, you know, we work with a lot of uh, partners in lower-income countries um, on any type of projects where they need engineering support. So they do a lot of work in water. Um, uh, trying to figure out uh, how to get water to remote communities. They mm-hmm. do a lot of work in water quality. Um, and then they, they do some work in sensing for water systems and remote sensing for water systems. And then my work has kind of fallen into this. I, I work on um, you know, the mechatronics for this EO, EOD and demining. Um, and uh, it's, it's been one of the ways that we're able to get different types of engineers involved in it. So instead of just doing water, we now do robotics and sensing and these other things. And, and, and really the center is, is, uh, is founded on, you know, ethical engagement. So we are constantly, um, we, we aren't going there saying we're going to solve your problems. We know how to do it. Here's a solution. We go and we work with local NGOs and local partnering is partnering partner with them. Yeah. And we listen to what they want to solve and how they want to solve it. That's and then a we, novel approach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's, it's really that sustainable development approach. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, and, and in doing that, we're able to solve, solve the problem in a culturally respectful way. And, uh, and, and then also, um, 
and the, and the likelihood of it of it be sustaining itself and and being replicated are so much higher. Right? Exactly, yes. exactly. And you know, I they have all kinds of interesting stories about, you know, um, about there are people. So so there's all kinds of really interesting stories about development activities going wrong because you haven't yeah. listened to the community, and we're very <laughs> careful about how we engage with the community. Yeah, there's there's a million sort of the, the the history of sort of foreign aid is sort of littered with sort of uh, you know well let's introduce the mongoose to catch the whatever you know like the the of of kind yeah. of issues that just you know aren't aren't attuned to what's on the ground and um, seem like a good idea but um, you kind <laughs> yeah. of parachute in and there's some really um and and from from a technology standpoint there's some really um, interesting photos of uh, wind turbines that people have installed and. They're just sitting there, not being used because nobody can maintain them, and um, and, it, and it just go. There's all kinds of interesting technology things where you know we have these, we have all these medical devices, and we're going to give them, and then they end up sitting in a closet because nobody can use them, or they can't, they don't have the disposables to go with them. So um, yeah, okay, you know, yeah. and, and so from a technology standpoint, you know, it has to be a solution that that has some kind of local connection. Otherwise, it's not sustainable. So you didn't you didn't uh, didn't train as a oh I'm going to be a um, as a Southeast Asianist working on Cambodia. Um, so so how did how did all this start? Yeah. How did you sort of come to the topic? So uh, so I I really stumbled into it <laughs> just by saying yes a lot to people. So I was uh, which for students is a great like say yes to opportunities. Yeah yeah right because. They're not coming again. One thing rolls on to the next, well, and, and just just keep saying yes. So, um, especially as a, uh, I was I was a really new professor, and um, I uh, I dealt with a lot of self doubt things and a lot of the imposter syndrome. Sure. And uh, and I was uh, I was working and um, my 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 research lab wasn't going the way I wanted it to. Right. And and I kind of sat back and I said, okay, I'm, and this is why I say yes. But I finally, I finally started saying, okay, I, I'm gonna. Whenever anybody comes to me with a with a project, I'm gonna say yes unless it's completely out of what I'm doing, and and if I'm a little bit uncomfortable, I'm just gonna say yes anyway. I'm gonna push through it, and, and may and maybe like broaden your portfolio, exactly, kind of like you know, exactly. many irons in the fire. Yeah, yeah. With, with this idea of of yeah. moving a little bit laterally. So in my core skills, but I was gonna start saying yes. But um, but essentially, uh, the 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 guy who now runs the uh, Center for Humanitarian Engineering. Um, came to me and just said, hey, you want to go to Cambodia? It turned out there was another person that was supposed to go. They dropped out at the last minute, and I happened to be the first person who was there <laughs> when he hung up the phone. <laughs> I kept getting the call, and he said, do you want to go? And I said, sure, I'll go. And uh, we start, uh, and, and what was happening is we had a, an alumnus um, who had uh, who had started a school in a r- remote area in Cambodia in uh, Ratanakiri, Ban Lung, which is right on the Vietnam-Cambodia uh, okay. border. And um, they were interested in building a new preschool building. Uh, and so we had some structural engineers who were going to go and learn right. how to build it. And so totally not robotics, totally not demining. But uh, on, the play ride, on the plane ride from Taiwan, uh, Taipei to Phnom Penh, um, one of our students sat next to this, this guy. He helped him figure out how to put on his seatbelt. <laughs> I don't know why <laughs> this kid didn't know how to put on his seatbelt, but he helped him figure out. They started talking, and when we were getting off the plane, he – said, hey, you know, I work for an NGO. We do explosive ordnance disposal technology. Why don't you come and see us? And he gave us his card. And uh, we had a day at the end of the trip, and we went out and visited them. And uh, I got hooked on on this uh, this these EOD projects. And, hap- and having that organization that we were involved with, this is the Golden West Humanitarian Foundation. Um, we've uh, we've kind of since not been working because there was a there was a there was a design lab that uh, that they that they've shut down and we were really doing a lot of our work there but we worked with them for boy 8 years on a lot of different really interesting projects S- some of the some of i think in the news the uh, i can't remember his name but the the rat who died i can't uh, remember his the, name either the, but yeah the, the, the right yeah a sort of a famous old rat uh, that had been working in demining mm-hmm. um uh, may have uh, that that was uh, i know shared a lot uh, what are some of the ways that They've they've tackled the issue of landmines in in Cambodia. Sure. Give us a sense of the range. Sure. So um so there's a there's many organizations that work in demining. Some of them are government run, and some of them are NGOs uh, that that come from uh, UK and Belgium and Nor- Norway. And then there's some some internal NGOs, some Cambodian NGOs that also 
duty mining. Okay. Um, and uh, there's there's a there's a broad range of technologies that are used. Um, most of them are, are human operated. So uh, a, a lot of it is we have a suspected minefield. We go through and we clear the brush. And this could look like using large brush cutters, which which uh, which just come down and they, they they're like on a on a uh, look like a backhoe. Right, but yeah. it has a big cutter on the end, and it just goes and it just mows down all the, all the brush. Um, or it could look like uh, a human operator with a with a weed trimmer, right? So there, there's there's different approaches there, but uh, you have to clear the area because these minefields have not been used for a while, so the brush has grown up. Okay, that's the first step. That's the yeah. first step, um, and then you grid it off, and you come through with some kind of mine detector, and this could be um, a uh, just a standard. Uh, Metal detector. You might use, you know, something um, a military version of what you might use on the beach to find right. to find uh, coins or something. But I'm I'm guessing that that there's going to be a lot of not false positives, but you're gonna you're gonna get hit on things that aren't any metal in the ground. Is that yeah, right? Like, yeah, and and you have you have to hit on every metal because many of the landmines are yeah. low, are low metal mines, and the only metal in the mine is the is the firing pin. So you yeah. have to crank up your seven sensitivity. So you're finding everything, and you've got to imagine these are yeah. minefields. So there's shrapnel, there's oh, yeah. other stuff. So, so so what you do is you go through. Um, if you're using this type of metal detector, um, you go through and uh, anything that you think is a mine, you mark it as a, as a mine, and you actually ex- excavate it and you blow it up in place. Um, is 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 one way of a, a typical way that it's done. Um, and then the rest of them that are suspected or that they're metal, but they don't think they're mines, they just take uh, essentially a long stick and poke it. And uh, and and it <laughs> that sounds nerve wracking. It, it does, <laughs> but I mean, I mean, landmines. You know the. Um, so I've I've asked the mining organizations about this yeah. and said like, is this a problem? Like, how often are you wrong? And they're not wrong that often. And even if they are, it's you know they're wearing full protective gear. You know, it's it's not just a spear like with some guy poking it. It's designed for this. Okay, yeah. It, it's I I might be in a little maybe I'm being a little bit, you know, <laughs> right, too, but, too but, flippant but, about but it. Still, but still it's not it's it's da- it's a dangerous. It, it, uh, it's 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 dangerous and in fact, you know, um the the demining community in Cambodia just just last uh I guess in January lost 3D miners in a uh, anti-tank mm-hmm. mine explosion that they were working they were working on the mine. Um that's the uh Oh boy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um you know, it's th- these people are highly trained. They they really know what they're doing, um, but it's it's dangerous work. So 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 there's uh, the for basically human run um, detection. So what are some of the other? You know, there's uh, rats and animals yeah. that are that are are they are they are they trained to smell it? Yes. So so there's rats and there's um, there's dogs. That Do they the, smell the metal? They smell the explosives. I think they or? smell the explosives. I, I'm not, I'm not an expert okay. on this, but my understanding is that I think they smell the explosives because okay. they were just smelling right, the metal. Right. There's lots of metal in the ground, and they are quite good. and And the organizations that use them really like stand by the animal uh, animals. And then there's some other crazy methods too. Like people are using bees now to try to find landmines. Okay, how does uh, that work? I think it's the same kind of thing. It's okay. it's, a, it's some kind of olfactory. Uh, you know uh, that that chemical sensing, right? Because because insects do chemical sensing. Do you, they do they train the bees? To I, go I believe after so. Wow. I believe so. It's uh it's it's not it's not something I've studied too much. Although we've we've looked a little bit into using chemical sensors to uh, to try to identify uh suspect suspected minefields. But um, you know it's it's hear, hear it's me quite out, Garrett. Fascinating. Hear me out, Garrett. Mechatronic bees. <laughs> well, mechatronic <laughs> mind bees. Yeah, yeah, to, to, totally. <laughs> I, I, I think it's really interesting, and uh, you know, we actually, um, it's, it's not so far from being possible, <laughs> right? But you heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think we used to, we used to talk about making hybrid animals. You know, like uh, it was be a dog but had rat feet, and you know, anyway. Okay. It, it, <laughs> It was it was a joke. I don't remember when Doctor Moreau, yeah, some, uh, something like detecting. that. But uh, but the animals okay, so are, are quite good. Are quite yeah. good. Yeah, and then and then, I guess those 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 the human and animal technologies or approaches work with. Uh, there's like lidar, ground penetrating radar, and other things. Are those are those effective in kind of narrowing the possible uh, areas where they might exist? Like how do, how does how does ground penetrating radar? It, it it senses metal. Uh, so so ground penetrating radar looks at density is more than anything else. Okay. Um, and there there is a mine detector called H Stamids, which c- incorporates electromagnetic induction or or or, or a mine uh, um, excuse me a metal detector, and GPR. 
And the idea is that you find out if it's metal and then you look at its density. So if it's dense, then it's probably a mine, right? Uh, if it's not dense, then it might be the lid to a tin can or something like that. Be- because because the mine itself is this compact, um, exactly. uh, you know, metal object with explosive that meant to shrapnelize exactly. that. Exactly. And so they can... Yeah, and and they and they use uh, and they they have certain signatures they know to look for in the GPR and um, you know it's a it, it it's really a nice device and it has extremely um, you know good statistics in terms of um, uh, false positive rate is low and then the uh, you know detection rate is very high so they they do pretty good and this is a this is a military equipment some some demining organizations do use them so what the thought process of an engineer. Um, as they're as they're going th- through this, how does I guess how how can engineers maybe see this see this problem this approach differently and sort of work it in conjunction with the people who are maybe um, you know working on the human or animal side? Sure. So um, you know when I f- when I first started getting into this when I got off that airplane in uh, in Phnom Penh and we were able to go meet with this guy, um, you know my wheels started turning Im- immediately. You know how 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 yeah. can we help right? There's, there's, you know, needs for technology. Um, and I think it's really tempting as, as an engineer, especially, you know, maybe from, from a more, um, you know, a higher income country uh, to, to say, you know, I'm going to come in here, we're going to use robots and we're going to automate this process. And, uh, you know, we're going to take the humans out of it completely to keep them safe. Um, you know, robots are good at dull, dirty and uh, dangerous jobs, and okay. this really fits all three of those things. Um, and uh, you know, and and then you know, you get kind of this, you know, the savior syndrome, right? Where I'm going to solve your problem; it's going to be great. Um, but uh, the demining community doesn't have an appetite to automate what they're doing because their detection rate needs to be ninety nine point nine 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 percent because they're going to release this land for use by the public. So, um, and, you know, there's a question as to whether robots can do that now. And I don't know that there's been one that has demonstrated that can, that, that can reliably do that for 99.999999. Um, so, uh, so the way I've approached it is I've, I've thought about, you know, how do we, how, how do we make mechatronic devices that can be interventions in the, in the demining process that make it maybe safer, faster, but work with the humans. It's 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 assisting the okay. human deminers. Uh, so um, you know we look at you know for example the brush clearing process is very expensive. So can we work on robots that maybe go under the brush and do a pre survey of it? Maybe maybe we can find a way to say oh you know what this area over here this ten percent of your mine suspected minefield we're 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 sure there's nothing there so we can just release that land now you know yeah. doing this uh you know technical and, inspection and Higgy, you've you've mentioned but the but the costs are that's is that one of the biggest costs in 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 mine clearing is actually the the preamble yeah yeah so so the brush clearance um so i've i've seen statistics that say it's 70% of the cost um wow. i think it it probably depends like super on, labor and time intensive yeah, and, yeah, yeah yeah but it probably depends on how you're doing it like i imagine if okay. you have one of those brush clutter, those brush cutters. That's the big mo- lawn mower thing. It's probably a little bit cheaper, um, but uh, I think uh, the statistics I, I'm quoting may be from from hand uh, hand clearing of the brush. So. But but e- either way, either uh, way, if you can save a dollar on on brush clearance, that goes directly into demining, right? So talk us about talk us through some of these robots that you've made. That I guess both in 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 all cases. They're kind of underbrush guys that are that are going out there. What are what are the, they? They have names. I, I should, what, what are their names? <laughs> so the robots we've been working on. One of them is called Mindbot. Uh, you Mindbot. Know, it's, okay. it's pretty pretty on the nose. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. It's a it's you a could workshop that a little. But it's yeah, it, it is what it <laughs> we, says. We have a long history of, of naming our robots blank bots. You know okay, something. Sure. Um, and uh, no, normally I name them after students, but <laughs> in some way, but uh, but but these are, these are a little bit. So so Mindbot and. Um, this was one we worked on for a while. It was a, it was an enormous failure. It just never worked. Uh, it was, it was a, it was a great concept, and we wrote some papers about it, and we put it on the ground, and it just never went. It was, it was one of those, uh, one of those things. Um, and uh, 
things fail sometimes. You know, you, they work. They, is, they, is that the one that kind of had the treads? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it was one with treads, and it, it was this multi-body construction, and it kind of moved. So Mike Benson, he's the one who 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 worked on this. If you're out there, I'm sorry, but we but <laughs> <laughs> but he, he he's okay. He got his PhD. He's he's right. he's, he's he wanted uh, it to work. Yeah, he he moved on to some other stuff, and 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 it was a it was a great device. Um, but I think it was a great device in the lab, but not in the field. And that was something that was uh, that was interesting. And it was hard to let that go because we worked on it for a while. And, and we we both put a lot of uh, effort into it. Um, and we kind of transitioned and we're, we're looking at uh, a robot now that is this. Um, uh, it's a well, we, we call it the snake bot, um, although it, it has these uh, screws on the side um, similar uh, you know, to like an Archimedes screw, but it just yeah. looks like a screw. And, and, and as it moves, uh, instead of the, the screw, um, like digging into, like, well, if you take a screw and you screw it into something, it, it moves through the wood, right? Right. It's the same idea. You just have a screw attached to the robots that rotates and essentially. Instead of, instead of wheels. Instead of wheels, right? And it moves along the screw just like you would if you were screwing something I, into the I'm wall. a, I'm a fan of of battle bots and yep. uh there's 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 one it's shatter i think it's got it's got the screw so it, and it and one thing that allows it to do is move basically any direction like so it doesn't it, by not having wheels so the screw allows it to yep. to to go basically anywhere so yeah, right? yeah so so this can move in all in all directions it's what's called a fully actuated robot which means you can move in all the axes that it wants to move in all the all the uh directions it wants to move and um you know, we we've uh, we built a couple of them, and and we're working on making it smaller right now because we built a prototype that was maybe two times the size of what we really want it to be, just to make sure the mechanism worked. Um, and it's it's uh it it's quite nice. You put it on the ground, it does what it's supposed to, and uh, we're we're right now um you know working with a group up in Binghamton at Binghamton University on uh, they they do mine detection, so they do um, magnetometers for mine detection. Okay, um, and um. They drag. We've we've gone up to their test site and we've we've had a magnetometer behind the robot dragged it through the minefield and we can actually identify the mine. So now we're interested in you know how do we actually get it in some brush and see how it does. Yeah. and that's that's the next step. And we're hoping to get out to Cambodia this summer to test it. So the so the I guess you're working in collaboration. You got the you're working on the robot robot part. They're working on the uh, magnetometer mm-hmm. yep. Um, yep. component and. And it looked like in your picture, it's kind of a toe behind. Yep. Like so, the the robot is dragging the the. Yep. Is it because it doesn't want the the be the metal on the robot as the yeah as the, as the mine? Yeah, yeah. So um, and, and there's also a lot of other magnetic fields that are generated just from your electronic oh, components. Yeah. Like your motors and and the, and and your magnetometer can't have that. Now we have a we have a uh, a shield over. We, we've shielded a lot of the insides of the of the robot. Cool. Um, so to try to keep uh, to try to keep some of that uh, magnetic, uh, you know, noise from leaking out. What is it? What is is it nickel? What what is it that that you could shield it that keeps it's, uh, it's, like, it's like, like a, a it's called mu metal fabric. I don't okay. know. I don't know what it. I don't actually don't know what it's made of. It's something they did up at Binghamton, okay. but they said they use it. So so we bought a we, we bought a huge roll of it, right. and we just wrapped the wrapped our robot in it. So it has a little bit of an outfit now, and uh, <laughs> but but uh, but yeah, it's it's dragging behind it, and that test specifically was trying to understand. You know, how far away does the sensor have to be from the robot to not get any interference? And I think longer term, you know, we're looking at, you know, having multiple drive units, so multiple of these little screw-driven robots or snake bots or whatever we want to call yeah. them, um, you know, kind of that are in a train. And that's where the snake comes from is, okay. is, is, you know, you might have a couple of those and some tools, like maybe even like a little excavator robot or something, and, and that, that ends up moving out, moving along through the brush. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Like it's a whole team that could like... Exactly. Um, exactly. Does it does it move, the, the snake bot, um, how does it communicate? Um, is it like GPS that it knows, like, here's the grid I'm supposed to be... Um, working and, and covering exactly, or is it is it or is a human steering it between? How does how does it know where to go? We're still working that out because GPS is tough because you're if you're underneath brush, your GPS uh, signal is probably yeah, gonna might not be that. great. Um, so it is a an open problem, and in fact, I have a PhD student working on it right now. <laughs> We're trying to come yeah. up with some solutions. It's it's uh it's kind of an open problem in robotics. Well, it's I mean, G- it, GPS it's called GPS denied navigation. Um, you know, there are yeah. a lot of people that do vision based navigation, so uh, you can do that. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, you can do dead reckoning, you can do all kinds of stuff. Um, but uh, we're, we're working on it. <laughs> That's cool. I mean, and, and, you know, it's also a way that, you know, if the, the human um, 
institutions on the ground that have put a lot of time and energy in, uh, from Cambodians and others training and, and doing um, this excavation work. You know, there's a, uh, it's, it sounds like almost any solution is going to, is going to need, you're going to need people to help do these. I mean, maybe in, in some, uh, in some fantasy future, you know, deploy, deploy robots uh, out of a airplane and they just go on their own and, completely clear areas and but i think we're a long ways from that right i I think we are i think um i think there are many applications of robots where completely removing the human doesn't make sense right i I think having human oversight is important especially things where um where human lives are involved right um you know i think it's 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 important to have some some human in the loop especially in really unstructured environments right yeah, a, a, a problem you you recognized as well was that if you if you create solutions, say drop in an expensive robot that, uh, you know that it's maybe hard to fix and then and then leave you know, that thing won't actually you know get used and maybe talk through some of the how do you how do you sort of what are some of the workarounds to try to make things cheap and use local materials or maybe some um, you mentioned sort of you thought PVC was a great idea and then realized that it, it wasn't because you started talking to locals. Like it means through some of those issues that are kind of really interesting in this collaborative process. Sure. So, um, so before we get into that, that's actually, um, let, let me just, let, let me just say one thing. So, yeah. so, um, so the, the snake bot is one robot we worked on and actually there's another robot we've worked on, which is more for explosive ordnance disposal, which is a little bit more like bomb squads. So okay. if you've ever seen the hurt locker, where you know you have the guys in the bomb suits and they're, or you know, or maybe it's they're got a big arm on it, like and it's going up to look at IEDs and that okay. type of thing. So, so that's another project that we have ongoing, um, and that's where you know we 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 ran into a lot of these um, cost versus um, uh, functionality versus robustness questions. Um, and uh, you know, this is this is something that we've developed into a product. We now have a company, and we're we're selling them. We just we just sold our first one to a big demining organization. What's the what's let's plug the company? Okay, sh- so the co- company's called Cushy Bots. Cushy, uh, Cushy, C U S H Y B O T S. It's because we started as as uh, in, a, in a completely different <laughs> direction, <laughs> and this was a pivot <laughs> right, <laughs> into right. something that we knew a little bit better. Um, but uh, but it's Cushy Bots Industrial is what we call it, which okay. is just a little bit of a right. oxymoron. But um, uh, and uh, you know we we've developed so this was developed at Villanova um, through a collaboration with Golden West and uh, kind of my main collaborator at Golden West and I you know have this company now and we're trying to sell we're 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 selling these robots. Um, but uh, you know when you're when you're developing something for a uh, for a, a situation where there's reduced resources, and that can be in low-income countries, uh, for governments mm-hmm. or NGOs, it could be for um, even in the even in the U.S. Maybe uh, you know local municipalities that don't have the same kind of funding to have these type of robots. Um, you know, because uh, what 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 are like some of the? I mean, the military ones are in a different ballpark altogether. But like a an expensive municipal robot, like what does what do those things cost? About a hundred to five hundred k. And uh, it's a lot. It's a lot. It, it, it's a lot. And, yeah. and, and then you have to think that, you know, when you buy an EOD robot, you don't just buy one, you usually buy two because you need a backup in case one of them is down. And there's often a yeah. maintenance contract, and you know, and there's often a maintenance contract you're, pl- you're paying. OK. Um, so it, it it adds up. So double that and add a maintenance contract. Exactly. At, at the very least. Exactly. Wow. And so, um, you know, there's a need. So so our approach was to say, all right. So and we do this with a lot of our technology when we're working on things that are more affordable is we say, can we do 90 percent? of what the expensive ones do at 10% of the cost. And if you can get that, that's reasonable. So now we're talking about maybe 15 K, right. And you buy two and it's 30. Yeah. And, and and with, and probably, and so I'm assuming these are, and probably parts that are uh, differently sourced and or easily acquired. It can be. Yeah. And, and we've, we've approached that in a couple different ways is, is one that we've looked at parts that are easily sourced in the locations we want to use it. So, so we don't have a special, for for example, we don't have a special control module. It's just a laptop, so you can go down to the local store and buy a laptop, right? Yeah. Um, and then the other thing we've done is we tried to make it modular, and so that so let's say there's a unit that fails, you know, maybe we just have a spare unit that we ship with the robot, and you unplug it and plug the new one in and send that one back to us for service. So oh, um, okay. So so that's the kind of stuff that we're trying to do with these. 
do does it is it hard to uh, Cambodia is obviously as a as a place you're talking, a country you're talking to. I would mean maybe other countries as well. Do they is this met with excitement on the ground from from and, and the government level? Uh, I guess who and who's buying the, the NGOs buying these or the is the uh, this private public? It could be all. Anyone. It could be all yeah. of those things. Um, there, there. Uh, so we took this to the. Uh, I guess it was what is it the uh, humanitarian. Mine Action Technology Workshop, which is run okay. out of a, out of a Geneva outfit on humanitarian demining, um, we took it to it. I guess that was four or five years ago, and we got ex- like they were just like this is when we pivoted our company because everybody there was like I want to buy one tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, and this was this was the this was the cushy bot with the kind of arm. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Demining. Yeah, yeah. So so it's 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 an EOD robot. So it's yeah. a little bit different than demining. Like these robots wouldn't necessarily be used for demining. These would be more for um, so you have a suspected explosive threat, and you would use this robot to go and look at it without sending a person to there. Okay. Right? So it's a remotely operated robot, um, but they're common in a military EOD uh, right. it's toolbox. Got like a camera and a hand. Exactly. And like a camera and a hand, and it you know it, it you you sit there and you make it go wherever you want, and you can you remote you operate it remotely, um, but it's able to go and essentially poke expected threat or uh, suspected threats um, without having to send a human there to do it. Um, and, okay. uh, and, and so th- th- there's a need for lower cost versions of these robots. Um, and, and there's, there's a, there was huge interest at this conference and uh, we took a bunch of people's cards and that's when we started saying, well, maybe we need to start making these instead of the other robot we were working on. So, um, so that was maybe uh maybe a year and a half ago and we decided, Hey, we're going to pivot. And now we've, we've kind of taken our robot that was developed at Villanova and kind of turned it into, and turned it into a production yeah. model. So you mentioned that, you know, a goal would be to have it do 90% of the things that at that 10% of the cost, what would, what, what are some of the things that you have to like leave on the table of a, of a, of a, of a cheaper robot or less expensive? Sure. So um, one of the things is that uh, some of the more expensive robots have really, um, quite amazing arms that they have that can, you know, move in all kinds of configurations, you know, navigate under a car and look up and see if there's anything under a car or get into a window and go into like many link arms, uh, maybe four, yeah. four link wow. arms, uh, extremely dexterous and, uh, you know, flexible. Um, and on our robot, we just said, we're going to go with the two link arm. We're going to do just, just be able to, you know, maybe pick up something on the ground in front of us lift it up, put it on top of our body, you know, something like that. And so, right, so, and, and it also seems to be not only that more expensive, but it seems like there's a chance for it to fail. All of those other, does that increase exponentially the, the, the more complicated it becomes? So I, th- I think that that's a, that's a difficult question because the, the robot I'm talking about, which is PackBot, which is from iRobot, is really an excellent engineer. It's, it's really engineered. Okay, so it's really well, well built. Yeah. yeah, so it's really well built. And, and I don't want to disparage them at all because their product is amazing, right? Um, but but, if, but we, if you can't afford but, 500K. <laughs> exactly. But if we tried to recreate that, func- that, that functionality for the cost that we were looking for, it would either not be robust or be too expensive. And that's why we went away from it. Right. Because it's, it's an excellent arm. Like, you know, like I said, we're, we're, we're losing 10% of what we can do. Right. So we're, we're only doing 90% of what that robot can do. But you know, if we wanted to get that, that, that extra 10% is expensive. Right. And, and also maybe like climbing stairs, as you mentioned, right. is not something that a mine detection robot or you know is or you know is not gonna need to do as much as one that's a military application. Yeah, yeah. So so the the being able to climb stairs is a is a good thing for EOD robots to do, right? It's it's good for them to do it. Yeah. Um. But we just decided that you know we're looking at a lot of outdoor operations and we're not going to worry as much about working inside. So again, we're we're not able to do that mission with our robot, right? But we can do. Many ninety percent of the other ones, and 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 I think you know, kind of coming up with what, what are you, be very carefully choosing, the functionality you need to keep, and, and we we actually spent a lot of time thinking about this. Is saying so. We, we worked with the EOD technicians, right, to to figure out you know what are most of your missions look like. Right. What do you need? What What do you need? Ninety percent of the time, 
how badly do you need to go upstairs? It's like, is that every mission? Is that every 10th mission? Right. And that's, that's the questions we asked. Right. So yeah, maybe it's, maybe it's a different bot that's going to need to do those things, but this one's going to have to, are there, are we, how do you, you know, there's a lot of, you know, fascination with drones and drone technology. Do they have a place in the, in the mine, mine detection, yes. mine removal landscape? Yes, um, very much so. In fact, uh, you know, I said I went to that conference four years ago at the, at the most recent one, which was this year. Okay. Um, that's what they talked about most, was about oh. using drones and demining. Um, so kind of switching back to demining, from EOD back to demining. Um, the, uh, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of remote sensing capabilities that you can put on drones that give you all kinds of interesting data about your site. So there are people that put mine uh, metal detectors on drones and ground penetrating radar and L- lidar. Like meaning, meaning that like the there's an actual metal detector like hanging from yes. the robot and it goes yes. the drone and it goes and yep. hovers yep. over the ground. Exactly that. Ah. Um, and uh, again, you know, we're kind of back to this question of can robots do it? And and what what people are saying that they're doing with it now is they're doing this. Maybe they're not going to use it as the final study, but they'll use it as a first pass. So they'll send this this drone over there. They'll get or over over your minefield. They'll get information about maybe where's where do they expect it to be most densely mined, and then um, and then they'll use that information in their planning of their actual human demining, which is and and that's very valuable information for for the deminers. Right, because you have a limited amount of human resources, and if that if that machine could tell you, hey, you should be, you should be looking in this quadrant much more so, right? I mean, I'm guessing that's a huge just in terms of time resources. It can something yeah. game changer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and not only that, but you know, e- even even if you're gonna demine the whole area, saying you know, you need to slow down and be extra diligent. Or, you know, I mean, they're already extremely, <laughs> you know, d- diligent yeah. in in their in their in their work. I've seen even more than that. But the red flags are going off exactly. all over here. Exactly. So, yeah. And then the other thing you can do is, um, you know, there are some technologies that allow you to look under brush. So LIDAR has been known to do this, um, where you can uh, you can get a LIDAR picture and then cut off the treetops, essentially <laughs> get rid of the brush, uh, do do yeah. do brush clearance in the, in the uh, data. Um, and then you can see uh, evidence of explosive warning. So uh, there was this one project, I think, from Halo Trust, I forget where it was, but they they were looking at a at a trench system that they were trying to map out underneath brush, with the idea that once they identified the trench system, they had an idea about where the mines might be placed relative to that trench. Uh, and so, really great use of uh, remote sensing. It struck me when you were talking about the you know brush clearing, etc., that a part that I had not considered about the you know pernicious evil of sort of mining and and carpet bombing is that you know the once they whether they explode that's awful if they don't explode that's also awful because they're there and then um there's there's an environmental price to pay right because you've got to say like i have to i have to cut everything down like it's a it's a it's a double heartbreak it's really i mean like i mean you can't not do it but it's horrible, right? <laughs> and 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 there yeah. really is nothing you can do. If you want to demine it, you got to clear that brush. And uh, and then there's other you know ecological impacts like uh, um, you know some the the explosives can leak into the groundwater and and, uh-huh. and and you know and 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 it goes on and on, right? Yeah. Um, and just the fact that they're there all the time, and you know there there's there's some questions. You know, a lot of these mines are very old. There are some people that believe, well, they're not going to explode anymore. Um, but how do we know? So you have to clear them. Yeah, I mean, so that was literally my next question is, is there is there a, you know, a half-life? How does how does it work for these explosives once they, are they always, I mean. Yeah, so not that I know of. And I think there are some people who who say now that, you know the minefields should be safe because it's been long enough, and the things and things degrade. Yeah, right? I mean right. they're they're underground, they're in water. I mean, you know they they weren't necessarily designed to live forever, right yeah. in the ground. But I, I I think I was at a uh, 
I was at a, uh, I, it was through an interpreter, so I'm not sure I got it right. But I was at a uh, a conference where there was a Cambodian official speaking, and and they were talking about this exactly. And the, and I think the way he put it as well, you know, I think there was a reporter that had written something, and he said, "Well, that reporter can be the first person to walk across <laughs> the minefield." And I, yeah. I and I guess that's kind of maybe, I mean, that's a very direct and maybe not not, <laughs> not a very tactful way of saying it. But at at some point, it's like you know, well, how do we how do we figure this out, right? I mean, we we can we can certainly test, but like if there's if there's one landmine in this field that's still good, I mean that's one casualty that we don't want to have to suffer. I don't know if a lot of people realize, but and and maybe say a bit about it that most mines are designed not to kill, it, but to wound. Why is that? So. Um, it's it's simply a matter of of numbers, and then they're designed to not kill, like you said, but to injure, um, with the idea that if you can just you know essentially blow someone's leg off or make or blind them, then it then it takes two people out of the fight. So if it kills them, it takes one person out of the fight. If, if it, it kills just, them immediately, if it kills them, yeah, they're yeah. out of the fight. If it just wounds them, it takes two people out because someone has to carry them to safety. And so they're they're designed to not kill. Anti personnel mines are not designed to kill. Wow, it's just like it's you know, there's this uh, there's this there's this manual about um, mines uh, that that or about explosive ordnance. It's it's this it's this book that this guy put together. It's just every inform every piece of information you would want about ordnance and and uh, and the I believe the first chapter he talk he says, you know, some of the greatest mines that have ever been on the earth have spent their 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 time building weapons. And it, and if you look back it, it really is true. I mean, look at the yeah. Manhattan project and 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 all, all these other things. Um, you like know, the the V2 rocket. Like right, the, right. Yeah, just yeah. just on and on. Yeah. And and because of that, these are incredibly well-engineered systems. They're they are they, they're designed to do what they're they're meant to do and people have thought about what what's the best way to so if a landmine is going to be there, it's better for it not to kill the person because of the numbers, right? And they've thought about all these things. And it, and it sounds really, I guess, you know, callous and, you know, not, not, <laughs> it, it's, it's not something that we would maybe think of, but um, like I said, best minds have, have worked on these weapons. Well, then that that's maybe why that some of the best minds should be working towards, towards undoing, these things what 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 a, what a great thing to say right yeah and, and, I, and i really think it's true and i think there's opportunities um for engineers to to work in this in fact i, I wrote a paper a couple years ago that went in a in, in, in mechanical engineering magazine kind of saying you know these are the problems we're working on they're great problems you know please you know start thinking yeah. about this stuff I, I don't know if it had any impact but um you know i'm i'm constantly trying to get people involved in this you know my colleagues trying to trying to figure out how how we can you know, uh, not just this problem, but other humanitarian issues that that engineers can can contribute to, if we if we're able to get into solving the problem in a you know a sustainable way, working with our partners in yeah. the field, um, I think that there there's so much good impact that engineers can have. So and and I guess if other engineers are bringing their particular expertise to to problems and they're able to provide solutions and and then with this new mindset of of sensitive and collaborative approaches for for the just the best outcomes and, and, and ethical as well but just the, the results are better as yeah. over time that uh, that's a that's an awesome future so if people are interested uh, what what let's talk about what, what should they be looking at? They should be, uh, your, um, uh, center for humanitarian engineering is a great place to start. start. It's a great place to start because that encompasses all of the humanitarian engineering. We work, we work, we do at Villanova. Um, and, uh, there's, there's profiles of my work there as well, but, uh, it's a really, really good place to start. And it's an, it's an awesome center. They do all kinds of great educational things, um, but also all of these international service projects. If there are students who are, or, or community members, I guess, also, who are not engineers, are there ways to, for them to get involved in a project like this? 
certainly, I think um, there's ways to do fundraising, right? There are oh, certainly yeah. um, uh, ways to get involved in uh, humanitarian organizations that are that are working in in Cambodia and other places in Southeast Asia and other places in the world. Is there a way for people who are not engineers to get involved in a project like this? Certainly, I think um, there's certainly fundraising opportunities, um, right? And uh, you know, just just in general, there's many humanitarian organizations that just need just need help, right? And I think just yeah. put yourself out there and find something you're passionate about and do it. I could also foresee, I'm sort of imagining a project where uh, you know, we, we send our students abroad a lot, to, including Cambodia, for there to be, you know, uh, part, part engineering and part, you know, culture, history, anthropology, et cetera. Something could be really fascinating to, for, for the, both for the, you know, the, the mechanically minded to, to wrap their heads around some of the uh, sort of questions in the humanities and for the, for those in the humanities social sciences to think about the sort of the, this technical side of it. I think it's a, those are good people to have talking to each other. Yeah. I think it's great. I'm, I'm so excited. I was able to come here because I think that's something I'm definitely taking away. I think there's a great opportunity for the center here to work with our center at Villanova. Um, I think that uh, you know, we 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 send engineers in the field all the time, and many to Southeast Asia. So we're we're in Indonesia, uh, we're in Laos, and we're in Cambodia right now. But we've had projects in Thailand before, um, and uh, I'm I'm always looking for ways to how, how do we, yeah, how do we improve their social competency before we send them? And what we were doing before is we had some Khmer students, some Cambodian students, yeah. uh, that 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 helped us out and gave us some. Uh, Know, they would meet with some students, talk with maybe do a little bit of a language thing, and we had students. Yeah, yeah. We, had, we had we had alumni who would come in, but you know that, but we never really got a good like sense of like the socio political type of stuff, right. uh, and and because that's hard for us to do just with with former former alu- alumni of our program, um, so uh, I think there's a great opportunity to 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 collaborate. Yeah, I think we'll be seeing more of each other. That's yes. exciting. Yes, definitely. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, this robots, it's always, it's always, it's always cool. Like, you know, it's a, I, I have a fun job. Yeah. I yeah. Fun you did job. a pretty cool yeah, job. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a good time. Well, Hey, it's uh thanks for coming Garrett. And, um, we come back again soon. All right. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Cheers. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Southeast Asia Crossroads. We would like to give thanks to Tantracoon for the use of his track, Electric Can, and a thanks to our audio producer, Amelia McCoy. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you tune in next time.